Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the redneck, and you bet I've gone green, and I'm trying to convince you to go green, too. And as I always do at the start of the show, I remind you that when I say go green, I mean that on a multiple multiple levels. The first one is deep ecology, uh, not conservationism. Uh, nature is not out there. For me, going green means understanding the interconnected nature of life itself, everything that we do to the web of life, we ultimately do to ourselves. Some people call that an indigenous worldview. Others call it eco-socialism. Uh, others just call it common sense. Others call it science. I don't care how you get to that point, but my point is that ultimately we are in a web of life and we need to act accordingly. The second reason that I say go green is because I'm a Green Party member, a proud, unapologetic Green Party member, because I believe that the Democratic and Republican parties, although there are some differences to be sure, are ultimately the party of capital, they're the party of empire, and they are both versions of fascism. Uh, Democrats are the version of the kinder, gentler fascism. Republicans these days are the version of the unadulterated in-your-face fascism. But make no mistake about it, uh, they are both the party of capitalism and empire. So here on Redneck Gone Green, we really push ourselves and you, the audience, to go beyond the ain't it awful and to bring to you voices of people who are answering the question, what is to be done? So it's in that spirit that I'm really excited to be bringing Eleanor Goldfield to you. I have to admit, on a personal level, I met Eleanor way back in the Occupy days, and it seems like she was everywhere as a filmmaker. She also self-identifies as a queer, creative, radical journalist. Uh, she is a mutual aid practitioner. She works with a variety of independent outlets, both written and photojournalism, co-founder of the independent media aggregate Rad Indie Media. Uh, she's won a Women in Media Award. Uh, she she She's done multiple films. She's a, she's a musician. We're going to be talking today about To the Trees, her most recent uh, documentary film, and a whole lot more. Eleanor, welcome to Redneck on Green. Thank you so much, David. It's great to it's great to hang out with you again. <laughs> I know, right? I miss you, lady. And I gotta say, like uh, one of the things that I should probably say is also anarchist mom. Absolutely. I mean, okay. I mean, kind of. My see, my anarchist friends say that I'm an anarchist. I don't personally apply a label to myself because I find that it uh, it it gums up the works, you know. Um, but yes, my anarchist friends say that I'm anarchist. But regardless of any of that, I am a mom. You are a mom. You are a mom. And so congratulations. And I got to say, watching your, your socials, you don't give us very many glimpses uh, of parenthood, but it's really cute and sweet when you do. Well, thank you. So listen, uh, look, I want to talk about To the Trees. We're going to talk about To the Trees. But I also want to uh, react to something that I saw you post, and that is as an unapologetic anti-Zionist Jew uh, who is in, you know, you're a public intellectual. You are somebody uh, in the movement. Uh, your opposition to this horrific war in Gaza is actually, you're getting pushback from it. And I want to open the space to have that conversation. 
Sure. So, yeah, I mean, it is uh, it's a fascinating time when you lose paid gigs because you're anti-genocide. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but there has been a lot of pushback, even if we're just not talking about losing paid gigs, but there's a lot of pushback from people, uh, unfortunately, inside of my own community. And I, I was recently having a conversation with an indigenous friend of mine who said that uh, it was so disappointing in particular when she gets let down by members of her indigenous community. It, it, it stings more. Uh, and I, I can relate to that in terms of fellow Jews calling me out for being a self-hating Jew because I'm anti-Zionist. And that stings in particular because it's so wrong because actually being Zionist is anti-Semitic. And I'm not talking about that just because Palestinians are also Semitic, but they are. <laughs> but like, let, let's just say that we're talking anti-Jewish. It's actually pro-Jewish to be anti-Zionist. And I'll explain what I mean by that, because Zionism is an inherently anti-Jewish project because it is a colonial project. It's a settler colonial white supremacist project. And therefore it is inherently anti-Jewish. It goes against our teachings. We are we are are told when we're growing up that the the, the Jewish plight uh, is about fighting oppression because we ourselves have been oppressed throughout history. Uh, our our job as Jews is to speak out and act out against oppression wherever we may find it. Um, and our job is to as as a as a little um line that I have on tattooed on my arm, justice, justice, we shall pursue, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, which means that not only shall we pursue just, justice, but we shall do so justly. And that means the antithesis of what we see happening uh, in Palestine, in occupied Palestine. And so really it is inherently anti-Jewish to be Zionist. Furthermore, the idea that Jews only belong in one place that is anti-Jewish, right? And we see that against oppressed peoples throughout history, the idea that you only belong in one place. You don't belong here, right? Uh, Jews, we have always existed all over the place since the advent of Judaism 6,000 some years ago. So we are at home, and this is this has been a, a pushback of the, of, of the Jewish community that's anti-Zionist. Wherever we are, that is our home. Uh, and the idea of Israel as a white supremacist, because lest we forget, uh, Israel has a habit of doing things like forcibly sterilizing Ethiopian Jews who are Jewish, but they're also African Jews, right? So it is a white supremacist colonialist project. And it's very important, particularly for Jews, to make that separation between the Zionist project and Judaism, because Judaism is a beautiful history. Judaism is a beautiful culture, uh, a myriad culture, a very vibrant and varied culture that is in its teachings and in its history in so many ways anti-Zionist. And that is very important to make that distinction. Oh, Eleanor, like I movement crush on you every time I talk to you. I mean, you're just, you're so brilliant. You're so clear and cogent. And I love the way like you even lovingly brushed off my label, right? And said, look, you know, let's just have a conversation. And I'm so glad that you did that. Because for me, one of the things that like is so painful, I, look, I will own, I grew up in uh, rural Texas, uh, where the N-word was used as a, as a child, as a descriptor, uh, anti-Semitism was rife, right? Uh, so like when I, when I got my heart right, like I feel like I became uh, as a Gentile, a, a, like attuned or sensitized to anti-Semitism and, mm -hmm. and wanting to root it out. And so often 
I feel like this moment of, oh, well, I don't want to be anti-Semitic because I've seen that in action. But I, in my bones, I can see Gaza as a, the world's largest open air prison system. And a, a, whether, you, whether you think it's a full-blown apartheid state or not, it is without doubt an unjust dispossession mm -hmm. of an entire people's. And it's just fucking... Pardon me. It's just wrong, right? It's just wrong. And so for you as a Jewish person to speak so clearly and eloquently, I just have such deep appreciation for that. Because the other thing that I want to uh, make a point of is that the Israeli government itself, um, like there's nine, roughly 9 million Israelis, 2 million of them are Palestinians who were clearly treated at best as second-class citizens. Like, mm -hmm. this is not, a, like when people say Israel is the only, quote, democracy uh, in the Middle East, it's galling to me. Like, <laughs> It's such BS. And I'll actually point out this too. Roughly, the, the estimates suggest that there are roughly 16 million Jews in the world. There are 30 million Christian Zionists in the United States alone. So the other thing that I think is important to point out, and Biden himself said this, you don't need to be Jewish to be a Zionist. Uh, most Zionists aren't actually Jews. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, we see that there is a clear demarcation between Judaism and Zionism. And that's also why it's so important to call out when people say that it's anti-Semitic, uh, because it is really just a tool. You know, a friend of mine who's a, who's just a rad human being, Jacqueline Lookman, said that Israel is a settler colonialist project with hiding behind a star of David. And it's so true, right? And we see this, you know, for instance, like the Biden administration hides behind Kamala Harris and the, you know, their, their press spokesperson who's a black woman. Like they just hide behind the facade of having people from oppressed and marginalized groups be their spokespeople. Well, Israel hides behind the star of David. And I'm disgusted as a Jew that they hide behind a, such an important symbol of Judaism. But it like, that's what it is. Uh, and so when you see people use Using that, don't get mad at the symbol. Get mad at the people using the symbol uh, and the perpetuation of settler colonialism and white supremacy wherever you see that, whether that be in the United States or in Israel or in you know wherever you might be. Uh, so that again, like it's it, it's such an important distinction to make. And that's why I love this conversation because it's really surfacing the interconnection between settler colonialism, white supremacy imperialism uh, itself, right? Like, because there's settler colonialism and then just full-blown empire and capitalism, right? These are all power over dominator systems based on extraction, exclusion, and at least the world I want to live in and that we at Redneck Gone Green are trying to help nurture into being is not something brand new, Eleanor, a return to the indigenous worldview where we recognize and celebrate cultural differences to be sure, but also an interconnectedness, not just between, you know, ethnicities and human to human, right? But also to our cousins, the bears and the, and the salmon and even the redwood trees, right? We're all related. Absolutely. And I think that, and I, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but he's an indigenous scholar based in, uh, based in Canada. And he was, he was talking about how a lot of white folks want to 
uh, or just non-Indigenous folks in general, want to kind of take the Indigenous perspective and make it their own, which is dangerous, right? Because then we step into that cultural appropriation, which is damaging, uh, but damaging to both people. Uh, and so what he said instead is that in your own history, all human beings have a history somewhere of living in concert with nature. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here because the only way that we've survived this long is because somewhere in our past, we were able to live in concert with nature and to understand, oh, okay, this is what this is what's happening here. I'm going to do this so that I can roll with whatever is happening in this climate or the you know these this ecosystem because I'm a part of it. So he said, look into your own history. And that's hard especially for people like, for instance, with my background, whether that be, uh, you know, European predominantly or, you know, North African or what have you, this is difficult because it's been covered up by the advent of capitalism, you know, fencing in the commons, uh, by the destruction of this kind of people's history uh, that, 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 that has flowed with the advent of capitalism and even with, you know, fiefdoms and, and, and things like that. So, it's hard and some of it has to be kind of guessed at, but even that guesswork is powerful. Uh, and we can learn a lot from the indigenous cultures that are obviously still here. <laughs> well, uh, and that's so important, but I think it's also important that we kind of get into our own practices. And I've been doing a little bit of this too, like digging into Jewish mysticism, but also digging into my Nordic roots. Uh, and I don't know what my Nordic ancestors did because that's been covered up by the advent of nation states and colonialism and all of that, but I can kind of guess at it. And I can be in these ecosystems and these spaces and feel like I'm part of it and feel that love that is inherent with the love of self that is mirrored in nature. And so I think like that's also an interesting point too, is the getting back to our roots, which is oftentimes something that's co-opted by white supremacists, you know, uh, like blood and soil and all of this, but in a totally twisted way. But really going back to our roots, even as white people, is going back to the actual roots and recognizing that we are part of nature. And that's really the only way that we're going to have a livable future. I'm so glad you're having this conversation, Eleanor, because, you know, to me, like one of the things to remember is whiteness is a construct. It was invented. Right. Uh, but but ethnicities are absolutely real. Cultural identities are absolutely real. Uh, I happen to know, thanks to my mama and uh, my mama and my papa and my cousin Wiley, who did some uh, research, I know that uh, I descend from Scottish and Irish folk who were pushed off of their ancestral lands through the enclosure movement, uh, traumatized by the English empire. Part of the reason I have a particular hatred of the English empire, Eleanor, not English people, I wanna be clear, like English people love them, love English people, hate the English empire. And I think that the, the English empire is probably the most hated empire as should be because how horrific they were. But the point is, my ancestors were traumatized, pushed off their ancestral land where they were living in balance and in right relationship, came to this continent, and then traumatized the indigenous people of this continent, pushing them off. So I, I say with, with clarity, I am a descendant of traumatized and traumatizer. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of trauma to go around. The commitment that I make is to try to learn how to be in balance. And I have the privilege of being a guest on WIAT ancestral territory. Mm -hmm. Watch what I'm doing here. 
which happens to be the place where To the Trees uh, was filmed. Uh, and I know uh, several of the people that you interviewed on a very personal level. And I, I will say this, Eleanor, before we get to To the Trees, and that is, I have had many Wiat uh, uh, elders and uh, members of the Wiat uh, tribe uh, befriend me, talk to me, and so forth. And not a single one of them has told me, David, you have to leave Wiat ancestral territory. What many of them have said, though, is, David, you need to learn to be here differently. Mm. And that's, I think, the lesson is, like, I have to be somewhere, right? How do we be wherever we are properly? And indigenous people still have the connection to Mother Earth in a way that has been lost to you and, and me, but we can find our way back, right? And mm -hmm. so this is my setup, Eleanor. I want you to tell us about the film To the Trees. Tell us what it is and what inspired you. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll start by by quoting somebody that I quote in the film, which is uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote the brilliant book, Braiding Sweetgrass. And she talks about the plantain, which is not indigenous to the so-called United States. And it was actually called by several tribes, white man's footstep. But we think of it as indigenous because it's become such a integral and helpful part of ecosystems here in the so-called United States. And what that means is it's become naturalized. Uh, you know, we, it can be used in, in, uh, in herbalism for a variety of uses. You can put the leaves in salads and all kinds of things. So it's become a health, helpful member of the ecosystem, even though it's not indigenous. And that's the point that she makes uh, in that book. And that's also one of the points that I make in the film. And the film, you're so right, takes place uh, in, on, on Wiat ancestral lands and the dwindling amount of redwoods that, uh, that are there. And there were once 2 million, some like 2 million acres of redwood forests, old growth redwood forests in the Pacific Northwest. And now 2% of that is left. So, and before you go deep, because I, I like I, I you you let me actually see the film and there's also a trailer. So what mm -hmm. I want you to do is tee up the trailer that we're about to see. We're going to actually for our uh, viewers, you're going to get a chance to actually watch this incredibly poetic uh, uh, trailer. For those of you who are listening on the podcast, uh, it will still be powerful. Listen to this audio. Eleanor, what uh, tell us just a word about uh, To the Trees and then we're gonna play the trailer for the audience. Sure, so To the Trees is basically, it's a call to action, it's a dedication and it's a promise and it's a militant apology. Um, and yeah, that's in a nutshell. Hit it, Jack. All over Northern California, all over the whole Pacific Northwest, like, Thousands and thousands of acres are being clear cut every year. If we don't really do something about what's happening, we might be able to save a few small places here and there, but we can win the battle, but we're gonna lose the war unless a whole bunch of people um, get involved and say like, no more. The people who came to this continent came with a mindset of extraction. I think when places are built with those kinds of mindsets, it doesn't leave a lot of space for something different or more. 
unfortunately only two to five percent of the historic pre-european settlement old growth is, is still remaining and there is nothing against the law in in cutting a tree that's you know over a thousand years old we can't protect everything but we could like even if we don't we can't figure out like an overall plan that's going to work we could like still just keep living in opposition to the extraction that's happening and like fight it in whichever way we can because we could still do it if we put our mindset together i really do i don't know if we got it in us is that you know nature bats last and it usually comes up it chokes me up every time uh like i've i've seen this and the idea of a militant apology just really it lands for me so i just really want to thank you uh and what i like about it is that this film is not afraid uh to be a poignant apology and you know an anguished cry and do hard objective data and science at the same time I mean, lady, you are a digital storyteller of the highest order. Thank you so much. Um, and it, it means a lot to me that it means a lot to you. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and I, I, I felt that one of the things that I've, I've also learned, like, like you from indigenous folks here on, on Turtle Island, is that I have a responsibility to break the the tradition, unfortunately, of uh, of white folks on this land. And as you pointed out, white folks is, is a made up term, but it's one that means a lot in our current system. Uh, and even though I'm the child of immigrants, right, my mom came here in the 80s and my father was first generation born here, uh, you know, Russian Jews who, who came to the, the United States, I am still a recipient of the privilege that comes with that uh, with that system. And so I have a responsibility to break that and just being a part of this system and having seen the destruction to ecosystems, I feel the need to start with a, an offering and, and, and all I can offer is that militant apology and the promise that I'm not going to let it happen again to whatever I can save. And that's it's also what one of the characters in, in the film says is that you can't save everything. It's impossible. As we speak, there are trees being cut down, whether they or or you know, olive groves burned in Palestine. Like we there's no way that we can save everything, but we can save something and we can save the places that we are that, that that are home to us or that mean something to us that we have fallen in love with and that we allow ourselves to fall in love with as a necessary step to reconnecting to nature and so you then you then you naturally want to apologize because you would never want to hurt anyone you love in this horrific way and that is of course the the, the kind of like the thesis i guess of this film is that Unless we shift our thinking, unless this paradigm shifts in a revolutionary way, there won't be a revolution in the streets. There won't be a revolution in the trees or wherever it might happen in, in prisons, what, what have you. We can't abolish this oppressive system unless we abolish it in our minds first. Right. And, you know, uh, you remind me, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And in this moment, 
uh, where we are seeing the ecological collapse accelerate. It's not coming, it's here. And as we are living, not, you know, Eleanor, when we first met, I think I would often talk about it. We would talk about we are in late stage capitalism. I've actually changed my rhetoric. I think this is end stage capitalism. Mm -hmm. This is the, the final stage of in, uh, industrial slash finance capitalism as we understand it. And I don't celebrate like, oh, it's the end of that because fascism is next, right? Like literally unapologetic fascism is rising in this country, right? Like, so what we're seeing is the collapse. And as Antonio Gramsci said so eloquently, right? Uh, the old world is dying. A new world is struggling to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And there are monsters. And I want to be clear, the neoliberals are monsters too. They are up, they are defenders of this monstrous system and sugarcoating it, right? Uh, so we shouldn't just say, oh, MAGA are the evildoers. Like, look, what we're saying is a power over dominator, extractive, oppressive system uh, is actually what is the problem. And it is systemic. And at the end of the day, like we are going to have to actually come together and find a way to dismantle this empire. Because, Eleanor, my read is like, so all empires fall, right? Like if I had to, to do, like if I were forced condense all that I know about human history uh, into three words, I could do it. All empires fall, right? This one will too. But the thing is, empires fall because of imperial overreach. They, they go out, they extract the resources, bring it back to the capital, uh, destroy, destroy, build up the capital even more. This is why imperialism and empire is the problem. And ultimately, it gets bigger. The, the capital of empire gets bigger. It, it, the, the supply chains and the destruction chains have to go out uh, longer and longer. Ultimately, it's called imperial overshoot. The whole thing collapses. That has happened time and time and time again. The difference in this era, in this moment in history, this is the first time, like, because every other time empires have fallen, the humans who survived drifted off into the forest or the savannas or the mountains or whatever the natural world was, right? Eleanor, this is a global empire. Like there's no place to go. We're either going to destroy Mother Earth because we're, we're, we're destroying it faster and commodifying it through capitalism faster than she can replenish herself, or we're going to have to figure out how to dismantle this and return to living in balance. That's my read, right? And so the thing I love about To the Trees uh, is it says here is a frontline defense that people are doing now, but you also like interspersed throughout it is a scathing critique of a system that commodifies Mother Earth, right? Like, like and, and to me, it's like, yes, everybody should watch this. And then whatever you're inspired to do, do it with passion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm so glad that that's your read because that's what I wanted. <laughs> that's what I was putting down. I'm glad you picked it up. Um, well, yeah, and I and I will say that like with with that commodified perspective, the idea is like with capitalism is that we treat things that are infinite, like ones and zeros on a computer screen, like they're finite 
oh, we don't have the money to do this. You should just make it up. Uh, and yet we treat money things- is a construct too, by the way. Right. Uh, I like when people are like, oh, we don't have a fiat currency. I'm like, you know, gold is not really worth anything unless you say it is either. So that's also not like, so the, but we treat things that are finite, like, water and clean air and food like they're infinite oh we'll just keep cutting stuff down and we'll just keep poisoning and it's like but that you can't just make that up like that's your little ai dude can't just create that um so that like that that is the inherent uh paradox of capitalism right and i think like it, it it is it is so uh also with regards to the fascism point neoliberal like the the road to fascism is paved by neoliberalism, right? It, it makes a smooth pathway to fascism. And that's absolutely what we're seeing right now. And again, that's why that, that, that psychological shift has to happen. And I think it's so funny too, when people are talking about like, like I've, I've taught my kid to hug trees. So whenever we go outside, we, we hug trees. Um, and you know, somebody was, somebody chuckled at it when they saw it. And I, and I thought to myself, it's weird that we've accepted that that's weird. And yet if I had him dressed up like a, uh, you know, logger with a little axe and he was hacking at the tree, everyone would be like, oh, that's so cute. And I'm like, how sick and twisted is that? <laughs> that like, you think it's weird I'm teaching him to hug a fellow member of this ecosystem. But it's so, it's so chill if he were to come out and chop it down. Like, it is, it is, it is remarkable. And, and going back to indigenous cultures, there's a a great book by Jack D. Forbes called uh, uh, Columbus and Other Cannibals, where he talks about, and he was a, an, an indigenous author, where he talks about something called Watiko, which is a mind virus that has infected the 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 the, the quote unquote white man and their uh, our ability to interact with nature. And Marnie, who's a, a member of the Weot tribe, talks about this in the film too, and she likens it to Gollum, which as a as a nerd I love. Um, and Gollum, for those who aren't aware, who haven't seen Lord of the Rings or read Lord of the Rings, Gollum is not. It's he's an unenviable character, right? He's so obsessed with this one golden ring that it has destroyed him mentally, physically, and emotionally. It's cut him off from community. He is isolated in every single meaning of that word and it has destroyed him and he has become a, a a creature an unenviable creature a hollowed out shell of his former self and we've built a system based on that character <laughs> like that's the kind of system that we have built and yet you're not supposed to read lord of the rings and be like yeah Gollum's my guy like that's i i totally and i want to emulate that guy and yet that's how our entire system is based. Right. And by the way, in Star Wars, uh, we are the stormtroopers. Let's be clear about that, right? Like, uh, we're not the Ewoks. Folks, you're listening and or watching Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. We are speaking with Eleanor Goldfield, a, a an artist, a musician, a filmmaker, uh, like just a radical all around awesome human being, an awesome possum. Uh, and we're talking about her film, To the Trees. Uh, I do want to take this moment to remind you, please like, share and subscribe. I know everybody says it. And you know why everybody says it? Because it's so damned important. We know that corporate media is uh, is basically poisoning our minds. We know that conversations like this are allowed to happen 
but they're not allowed to actually be lifted up. So it's very important that we build the interconnected tissue between media, much the way Eleanor does. Uh, and I hope we might get a chance to talk a little bit about some of your other work uh, as a, a photojournalist and a, and a media organizer, right? So the point is folks, like, share, subscribe. Uh, and I wanna circle back, Eleanor, uh, to to a comment that uh, another indigenous uh, elder all, uh, once told me, and he said, David, like when we say to you and your people that the trees are talking to us, it's not a metaphor, right? Like, and he said, and this 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 makes I get chills whenever I even think about it. It's he said, and it makes me sad that you can't hear it because I know you. You're a good human, but you have been reared in a society that didn't teach you to hear it. So you can't hear it naturally, but you're supposed to. It's your birthright. You're supposed to be able to hear that. And he said, so you just have to work harder. And again, I'm tearing up. You just, you have to work harder. It's not fair, but you have to work harder. And if you do, it's in your DNA. You can get there. You just have to work harder. And so that I sort of took that as, a, as my assignment, to work hard enough to be able to hear the trees. Uh, and I feel like to the trees, like helps me do that. And I'm really so grateful. Uh, and I also, again, like I want to circle back because this film is brilliant. How can people access this film? Well, David, thank you again, because I that means so much to me, because that's <clears throat> definitely one of the things that I, I want people to get from this. Um, and so so if people can check out the film at tothetreesfilm.com. And you can also see other work that I've done uh, over at artkillingapathy.com. Cool. And you've done a lot, like you've done photojournalism, you've done a you filmmaker, you're uh, you, at least... I remember you used to tour with Rooftop Revolutionaries. Uh, so I, I am really curious about the work that you're doing. And I haven't really, uh, like we haven't talked since you, you've really gotten a heavy duty involved in building like media, like genuinely autonomous, independent media connections. So can you talk a little bit about that work that you're doing? Sure. So uh, Rooftop Revolutionaries has been relegated to the the annals of history, which is fine. Uh, all empires fall and all bands break up. That's uh, those are two facts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did release a solo album, which is available on artkillingapathy.com. Um, but, uh, so the media work that I do, I, I work uh, a lot with an organization called Project Censored and the Media Freedom Foundation, which is kind of the nonprofit umbrella that, that Project Censored sits under. And Project Censored releases a book every year of like the top 25 most censored stories, which are stories that you haven't heard on corporate media because it's corporate media. And, um, and really highlighting the fact that we do not have a free press in this country because a free press is necessarily an adversarial press, right? If you have like CNN and the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, they're stenographers for the State Department. They basically, and they, they've said this too, like proudly, like we check in with the CIA before we print a story. And I'm like, hey, dude, you shouldn't say that out loud because that's not a good look. But it's become a good look to check in with the powers that be before you print a story, as opposed to printing a story because it 
goes against the uh, the empire uh, and it holds them accountable. Our press in this country, the legacy press or corporate media, does not hold power accountable. Uh, and part of what we do is is really highlight media literacy and how to how to see that 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 is the case that they don't speak for the people that they speak instead for empire. Uh, so it's really about highlighting independent media. The fact that we don't have a free press and the fact that independent media is consistently censored, right? Uh, I know that we both know Lee Camp and he is the most censored comedian in the country and shadow banned, right? And this also speaks to the oh, value so, so, shadow banned, like for folks who, because I know our audience, right? Like they're not all hardcore uh, lefties, right? We, we have some very interesting conversations. So I know what shadow banned is. Right. But I want you to define that term because it's pretty damn chilling. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing is that the 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 powers that be are very malleable, right? They know that if they outright ban people, that's not a good look. It doesn't fit with the PR campaign that we are the land of the free, right? So instead, they institute things like shadow banning, which means that, for instance, when uh, Lee puts up a video uh, and it goes on YouTube, and even if you subscribe to him on YouTube, you're not going to see it they won't tell you that it's available. Or let's say that uh, you used to follow him on Facebook and then all of a sudden you realize one day, oh, I don't anymore. I wonder how that happened. Well, they kicked you off. Uh, they don't show the posts to anybody. You know, so this is the point. It's not a ban. It's a shadow ban. In other words, because you don't know that you're not being able to access the material. So it's actually profoundly more insidious oh, because you don't even know. Right. Absolutely. And that's the point, right? Uh, it's, it's like gaslighting people. They're supposed to stand there and be like, well, I thought I followed him, but oh man. And people will actually reach out to him and say like, hey, I, I what, how come you don't put out any content anymore? <laughs> because they don't see it. And it's like he does content constantly, but that's the idea. Uh, and then you also, you, 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 you can try to contact YouTube. Good luck. You can try to contact Facebook. That's like you're working with the Atlantic council. Good luck. And that's the idea. There's nobody to go to with these grievances and say, Hey, I'm not reaching anybody. They know you're not reaching anybody. <laughs> They're well aware. Uh, and that's the idea, but you can't say, outright well i've you know they've kicked me off they've i mean he can say that they've deleted all of his videos from youtube which they have done but that is a rare case most of the time it's shadow banning and i've had this happen to me too particularly when you say like if you title a video uh israel and palestine oh that will get shown to no one even not even your mother uh you know like that they, they just want to make sure that that does not get out there uh, and so the the way that things are titled, that's why folks might see like if somebody writes the word fascist, they might spell it with like a couple of stars so that scanners are less likely to see it. Because if you have something in there that says like anti-fascist, oh, they won't show that to anybody. So that's why you might see people trying to get around these censors. And it's so wild that we have to do that, right? In a country where it's supposedly the First Amendment, free press, free speech, um, but it's it's not accessible. the The idea is that we don't have actually have access to free speech or free press in this country, and that's also why critical media literacy is so important. Because if you don't know what you don't know, then you can't fight it, and you can't right. fight for the rights that you don't know you don't have. And it's really uh, like so. Like this idea of a free press is galling, and I'll tell you what else is galling is the idea of the quote liberal media. I, I like to tell people like, look this. 
like legacy media is or it, like the media is just as liberal as the billionaires who own it right like and the thing is it's also not a quote conservative media let's be clear about that like it is a corporate media it is a media that is literally designed to commodify everything and what they're selling is actually access to your eyeballs and your ears and your mind right like that's literally the business model make no mistake about it like uh the idea of creating a medium by which ordinary people can talk to each other uh and educate each other and inspire each other and love each other like if you can't commodify it it doesn't exist in the corporate media world Right. And, that, and that's why you'll never hear a story on corporate media about how we should live in concert with nature. Because <laughs> like, how do you sell that? How do you sell somebody love of a tree? Like, that's not a thing. Uh, I'm sure somebody has tried. But and, and, and that's all like j just going back to the Gaza thing. If you if you look at how the media treats what's happening. One of my favorite, I mean, least favorite, really. But what like Reuters published, I think it was October 13th or something. Uh, a journalist killed by missile fired from the direction of Israel. What can't, what? Just say Israel fired a missile that killed it. But they can't, they can't say Israel did it. They can't do it. But meanwhile, Hamas did this and Gaza did this. And, they, da, 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 da. and so the aggressor in the corporate media is always the Palestinian. And Israel is always, the, it's always the passive voice, right? It's always, this thing happened and I don't know how it happened, but these all these people in Gaza died. What they die of? The flu? Like, no, they're being murdered, but you're not going to see that. And this is also like the importance of recognizing propaganda and recognizing that we are propagandized. We are programmed and propagandized from, from these headlines to the point that you made, David, about how you were programmed to not hear trees speak it goes from the micro level down to the, like the, the very core of our being and our ability to connect with each other and nature and even just like and it goes from that level to the level of just using the passive voice to talk about a genocide uh they were being genocided oh by who i don't know it's, it's a mystery well, here's the one war broke out Right. As if like it just like oh thing. wow we were just like and then it just sort of happened right, right. Or, or or the other one uh, you know uh, a woman was assaulted it's like no like a man assaulted a woman like like it, once we are attuned to to the language and the kind of media literacy you're talking about I got to tell you folks once it's it's like being like either nearsighted or farsighted, like you're not blind, right? But everything is kind of fuzzy. But what to me, once I had the analysis of white supremacy and capitalism and heteropatriarchy uh, and settler colonialism, bam, everything makes sense, right? And the thing is, U.S. history is confusing because we're taught liberty, justice, equality. We're taught all these wonderful things. I mean, Eleanor, I'm of a generation, I can still remember being so proud to be an American because we were the great shining light on the hill. And not only did we live in liberty, justice, and equality, but we were gonna guarantee it for the whole world. As a little boy, I was so proud, right? <laughs> and I grew up and I realized you bastards lied to me. You lied to me. And yeah. I guess that's it. Like. Once you have the lens, you see with clarity and everything starts to make sense. And what I'm encouraging on Redneck Gone Green is 
Let's have honest conversations with one another. Let's call what we're seeing, how we're seeing it, and then try to like break it down without dumbing it down, right? I can have this conversation in a pool hall or a bowling alley. I won't use the exact language I'm using right now, but the concepts will be the same. Right. And that's a point that I that I think is important, David, because we got to meet people where they're at. Because as Malcolm X said, there was once a time where you don't know where you know now. And so when I go down, when I went down to Louisiana and sat down with the guy who, you know, was was this was before Trump, but he was definitely right wing and we had a beer on his porch. I wasn't going to start with I wasn't going to lead with, hey, my anarchist friends think I'm an anarchist. Like, that's not how I'm going to open that conversation. Right. I'm going to open it by like, hey, man, I don't trust the Democrats either. What? Why don't you trust them? And like that we have to, and you know, like when I'm talking to my dad about Zionism, because he was born, get this, he's older than the state of Israel. Weird, isn't it? Um, he was born during the Second World War. And his parents, as Jews, were, of course, terrified about what was going on. So he grew up with a completely different perspective on Zionism than I grew up with, even, even though we I grew up Jewish as well. And so I what I did with him, I sent him a rabbinical statement by Jewish Voice for Peace about what's happening uh, in Gaza, because this speaks to where he's coming from. As somebody growing up, hearing, you know, respecting rabbis and everything like that, I'm not going to send him electronic intifada, though I love electronic intifada and I love everything that they do, but I'm not going to send him that link, right? You got to talk to people where they're coming from. Just like if you want to talk to me and you send me something that some like, you know, white dude in a, in a salmon colored shirt and khakis wrote, I'm going to be like, mm. but if you send me like something that's like this queer radical wrote, I'd be like more interested or more likely to read it that we're just pro we're just like that, you know? And so I think that is so important to never, never make it dumber because I think that's also the problem that I have with this, especially when we're talking about white foot, poor white folks in the South, because I grew up in the South and I'm so sick and tired of people saying, oh, you got to dumb it down for them. No, you don't. Because people are not stupid. You don't have to be told what it feels like to be oppressed. You might not know the specific academic language, but nobody needs to be told what it feels like. What we really got to do is listen to folks and then talk to people about the analysis and talk about why that is why their analysis is incorrect based on the programming that we've all received and 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 open some doors and open some books and open some minds and ideas but it's never dumbing down you know you wouldn't say that it's dumbing it down to speak french it's just a different way of speaking so we got to speak to people in the languages that they that they understand and that they feel comfortable with so, uh, Eleanor, I got to say that you have elicited so much uh, good conversation in the chat, which I'll be honest, I normally follow, uh, but I've been so enraptured by this conversation. Uh, so I'm just going to apologize to the audience that I normally uh, pay much more attention uh, to the chat. And I'm going to ask you if you've got a specific uh, comment or question at this point, even if you've already made it, please drop it in there and we'll pay a little more attention because one of the things that we're proud of on a Red Net Gone Green is we typically do engage the audience and I've just not done so again because I've gotten so uh, wrapped up in this fantastic conversation. Uh, but I do know uh, that I want to uh, lift up that Z Manny, who is uh, a, a frequent uh, a commenter uh, and participant, uh, is lifting up gerrymander as a good resource to, to connect the inherent tech properties to institutional structures, to the indigenous worldview of nature and politics. Uh, so, and uh, I just wanted to lift that one up. 
Um, so uh, I, I'm curious for you, Eleanor, if there are others that you think of as particular, you've already mentioned Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, who, her, whose books Braiding Sweetgrass is like poetry uh, in, in the form of prose. Uh, are there others that you sort of follow or you want to lift up uh, that that uh, are voices that we don't normally hear on corporate media. Oh man, God, how how much time you got? Um, <laughs> I mean, I as 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 a bit of a nerd, not a bit of a nerd. I'm a I'm a total nerd. I, there's a long list of um, of people in print and even in 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 film and poetry and in art that have uh, held my hand through <laughs> through through the, my ongoing journey. Uh, against this programming. And uh, I, I should say, just off the top of my head, folks like James Baldwin and Bell Hooks, uh, I'm totally blanking on her name because I'm terrible with names, but uh, the, the, the woman who wrote An Indigenous People's History of the United States, um, those, I think those books have done, I mean, Chris Hedges, uh uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman was very pivotal for me in understanding the link between capitalism and colonialism. I mean, there's just so many uh, people that have, op again, opened those doors for me to really start connecting issues and start digging down to the roots. Uh, and this is also why I call myself a creative radical. I told you I'm a nerd because the root of the word radical means root. Um, and so as such, I really... I really get off on digging to the root causes of things. And of course, they're always intertwined and interconnected. Uh, and so those are some of the folks that have that have have helped me open those doors and walk through them. And I mean, again, I could like in, in music too. you know, like Rage Against the Machine, um, you know, like the. the I, I, there, there's just so many that my brain right now is going so fast that I will never be able to actually catch up with it. I, I want to. I, I do want to uh, lift up Michael, uh, who is a personal friend who who uh, uh, watches and and drops in from time to time. Michael says, "If you don't put forward your actual ideas in plain language, you can't know what people will think of them or uh, what they might do about them." And I think that that's something that is uh, a very powerful way to think about it. Like again, I can have these conversations. Uh, at, at a pool, a pool hall or a bowling alley. And it basically starts with, you know, what do you think about the boss man? Like, and, and like, it doesn't take much at all to get working class folks. And, and I mean, like white Southern working class folks mm -hmm. to rail against the billionaire class, like fuck those bosses, right? Like they got their boot on our neck and we know it. Like, uh, again, like if you're actually even moderately skilled and willing to listen you can actually pretty quickly find some common ground with folks. But what you have to do uh, is be willing to understand that the casual racism and the casual sexism that you're going to hear uh, is not an indication of an enemy, but of somebody confused, right? I, and I really mean that. Right. And I think that this this is something that I think also speaks to the importance of having uh, people that look like us <laughs> do this work, right? Um, and I think it's also important why there needs to be more of this organizing happening in poor white communities, particularly in the South, because a lot of people just treat them like they're a foregone conclusion for the KKK and everything. And of course, they will be if we never step into our own communities. I mean, I'm from the South too, and do, and, and do anything about it. 
And I think that, uh, you know, like it also speaks to the programming, the erasure of their of, of our own history. Right. Because my first film, Hardwood of Hope, actually talks about the radical history of West Virginia and how in the mine wars, white and black coal miners marched together, took up arms and shot at coal barons. Did we learn about that in school? Because I didn't, because of course they're not going to tell you that you and a bunch of black folks could take up arms and shoot at the corporate overlords. They're not going to tell you that. I so mean, the Battle of Blair Mountain is like, I, I cry when I think about the Battle of Blair Mountain, right? And there are so many examples of that. And on, honestly, this is the thing, like I'm not whitewashing anything. Uh, oh, I just made a little pun. Uh, because I, I want to be clear, like, there are plenty examples of Bull Connors out there, but that that is a caricature. There are also so many examples of Miles Horton. There are so many examples uh, of good white folk uh, doing courageous work for racial justice, for economic justice. And at the end of the day, as like, you know, my uh, dear friend, Jerome Scott, you, you interviewed uh, Jerome and I together, I remember. And, you know, the one thing that scares the ruling elite more than anything else is when a white cracker like me and a black radical like Jerome Scott are sharing stories and finding our commonality and throwing down together because there's more of us than there are of them. Right. And just because like and I got to tell you, like white folk are the most confused of all because and this is stay with me, because even as we're privileged we're also oppressed. It comes at a very high, I mean, white men too. Bell Hooks, read Understanding Patriarchy. Yes, maleness is privileged in this society, no doubt about it. It comes at the expense of women, but you know what it costs people with bodies like mine and a penis and who present as male? It costs us our humanity. It costs us the ability to actually be empathetic and be our true and authentic selves. It's a bad fucking deal. Whiteness is a bad deal. Like male supremacy is actually a bad deal. And we ought to actually say that, right? Like this is not a good deal for us. Like, like it's costing so much of our humanity. Yeah, absolutely. And I love I, I love Bell Hooks, um, her book, Will to Change, also, that talks about how the first lesson that boys learn is that they're not allowed to have emotions other than rage. And when you look at our society, that's quite clear, because the only male emotion that is uplifted and supported is rage. And doubly so for white men. And I oftentimes say, and I, again, this is something that I bring to poor white communities when, when they ask like, what is, what is this shit with white privilege? I'm poor. And I'm, and I'm like, yes, absolutely. White privilege is not the idea that your life has been easy. It's that your life hasn't been difficult because the color of your skin. That's all that means. It does not mean that you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth or anything like that. Life sucks gen generally for 99% of us. <laughs> It's just that it sucks typically systemically more if you are not the same color as I am. And if you are, then your life won't suck because of the color of your skin. It will suck for a myriad other reasons. You were born here, you were born poor, you were born female or whatever. And so that's that's like part of the deconstructing again, like the the talking to people about the shit that they hear that sounds off putting like white privilege. OK, that's not going to scan for somebody who who is poor and white and struggling and oppressed. So 
we we it's our job, particularly as fellow white folks, particularly from the South, to ha sit down and have a beer and have or tea or whatever and have those conversations. Uh, and I, I like that you kept saying, David, to listen, because I think that's the other thing is that when I was talking to a former coal miner in West Virginia, he's like, I'm just tired of all these environmentalists coming in here and telling me about climate change like I don't know about it. It's like, yeah, we need to shut up for a second and maybe ask a question and then really listen to it like okay so what do you feel needs to happen and he like he told me he's like i'll tell you how you make an environmentalist you give 100 coal miners jobs at a solar power plant and then in two years they'd whoop a coal miner's ass and eleanor so yes and then say and here's the path to actually owning uh uh that plant and be a worker owner right and introduce the idea of workers owning the means of production because workers make the world go right like this like like again i you don't like you don't have to come in with marxist or socialist rhetoric right these concepts of liberation these concepts of interconnectedness people will react to it at least that's been my experience Absolutely. And I oftentimes tell people too, like I, I had this conversation with an indigenous friend of mine and she's like, I just don't, I like, I, I read about anarchy and I think it sounds great, but I just don't like that there are so many white people. And I'm like, I get it, but reality y'all had anarchy before we put a label on it. It's just that we like, we right. like labels. You know, I, I, I have a label maker. I, maybe it's a white thing. I don't know. I no. like labels. <laughs> like, I, I want to, Remember, Eleanor, like uh, I get what you're saying around labels, but one of the things I push back on is to remember that words are merely labels that we use to communicate concepts and ideas. Now, I get it that some label, some words have become labels to suppress conversation mm -hmm. and discourse and say, oh, you're this thing, so I don't have to, to listen to you. But at the end of the day, that's why it's so important to have honest conversation about these concepts without getting too caught up. So when well, people- Right, and I i mean, I was joking. I actually don't like the label of anarchist, like I said at the beginning, uh, because it's a barrier. Even anarchists argue about what it means, right? <laughs> so like, I don't use it. Uh, I really go off of the concepts of anarchy as an anti-hierarchical um, uh, anti and anti-oppressive ideology. And I can talk about that without ever using the word anarchy. And I do all the time. And I do think that that's important. And I was having this conversation with my indigenous friend and I was like, really, it is an it is a pre-capitalist concept for peoples who were just living that way. And it will be a post-capitalist idea, but we, we can call it Steve if you want to. The idea <laughs> is the same, right? And so that's, I, I totally agree with you, David. And I don't use the labels. And actually, I think it's really cool what happened. I, I, I heard about this from a, a friend in Spain when all of this ha was, was going on with, um, with the idea of seceding this uh, 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 Catalonia, they had these meetings. And even though they knew people, okay, I know that that person's a communist, they weren't allowed to come in with ever, whatever label their party was. They were only allowed to come in with their names. So nobody was allowed to bring up, my party says this, or my party thinks that. They were just allowed to sit around the, sit around the table as human beings talking to each other. And wow, what a difference it made, she said, because people were having these deep 
conversations, even though if you would have looked at their labels, they would have been like this from the very beginning. So it's like, yeah, let's drop that shit and get to the core of what we actually need to be talking about. And again, like you said, it'll take 30 seconds for that poor white dude to start talking shit about his boss. Absolutely. But if you start the conversation with like, hey, can I talk to you about Marxism? It's like, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. Right. And you know, it's really funny too, uh, because this, this whole idea about uh, uh, liberation, like, uh, you know, to me, like collectively, like the, like I genuinely have confidence in, in human beings. I, I want to be clear. I don't think that humans are angelic. I also don't think humans are demonic. I think that most of us basically do what we're incentivized to do. But I can tell you this, that my experience uh, as somebody who has lived through earthquakes and hurricanes uh, and tornadoes, uh, like every time I've seen like natural disaster, ordinary people come together and try to help each other. Every fucking time. Like at the end of the day, like our... Uh, like we're genetically programmed to actually nurture and help each other. There's about 1% that are sociopath. So there is something to this. We are the 99%, I think. Like, uh, uh, but, but like, I think it's really true. And you, you mentioned this earlier, Eleanor, like we, we, we have survived as a species because we basically collaborate and are in solidarity with with one another. I think that that's like, that's actually our birthright. We're supposed to be living that way. Right. And we're not. And I'll tell you, like, it's sort of like with, with work, right? The work means meaningful, productive human activity. Here's the thing. Everybody wants to work. The right wing lies to you and says that people are lazy. It's not true. What people don't want and what I don't want is a job where I'm pushed about, bossed about, my, my, the value of my labor is extracted from me uh, and I'm doled out little bits of it. Like, but if you say meaningful, productive activity for which society will appreciate and respect you, that's what we want. We want yeah. to work. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, they've done every time they've done a study with UBI, uh, Universal Basic Income, they find that people don't just sit on their couches and do nothing because we're not programmed that way. You only have to look at toddlers. Like if you look at my toddler, he actually gets angry if he can't help. We are programmed inherently to want to be part of our community because we're social animals. We are. Even me, an introvert who doesn't like people, I want to hang out with people and be helpful when like when I'm in my community. And so we are we are programmed that way. And so the idea and of course this is part of that programming again like the psychology, the idea that work equals somehow ensuring that that douche canoe can buy an, another yacht. Like, no, that's not really what work is supposed to be. Labor is supposed to be labor of love. Like the labor of building community, of coexisting with each other and in, in these ecosystems, uh, of, of building the beautiful future that we all deserve and want. That's really what work and labor should be. But that even that concept that basic human concept has been co-opted uh, by the, the by the assholes at the top so that we have learned to hate it and to push against it and why the right wing can use that as an argument uh, against things like UBI and against things like, uh, you know, like like working in, in, in community with each other. 
Eleanor, like I, this, this hour has just absolutely flown by. Through the course of the conversation, we did lift up that you're a mom and that you've got a toddler. And so I want to be super respectful of your time. So I want to give you an opportunity for any closing thoughts. Oh my gosh. Well, David, I feel like I could talk to you for the next like four years, but um, that's a good thing. Uh, and so I just want to say thanks so much for inviting me on to talk about such a myriad of, of, of issues and topics. Uh, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's so important. And I think that especially that like you and having your history and um, your perspectives is such a guiding light to a lot of people who are stuck in the programming that we've talked so much about. So thank you again so much for being you and for inviting me on here. And folks can find all of my work, including To the Trees, uh, over at artkillingapathy.com. That's artkillingapathy.com. Folks, I'm David Cobb, your host of Redneck Gone Green. We've been talking to Eleanor Goldfield. I want to remind you, please like, share, and subscribe because we are getting larger, we're getting stronger, we're getting better organized. And I am committed to revolution, a peaceful revolution, but I know that we can restructure this society. We can build a society where all human needs are met and that we can do it in a way that is in balance with Mother Earth naturally the way it's supposed to be. All we have to do is work together. And we learn to work together by working together. Peace.